Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. In my first few years of ministry, I read several books about ministry and about ministering. And one of those books that I got into and really loved, uh, really fell in love with, was a book on preaching and the seriousness of the task and the kind of the approach to preaching. Like, how do you do this? Uh, not from a technical standpoint, uh, from a uh, motive standpoint, your, your motivation for this, in a sense. Uh, that be- book began with this simple but, but very profound statement. The author says, people are starving for the greatness of God. As I read that in, in my own mind, in my own heart, that, that leapt off the page at me and I thought, man, that's what I want. I don't, I don't know about anybody else, but man, that's what I want. That's what I want to learn. That's what I want to know. That's what I want to grow in. In chapter 4, he goes on and he addresses the the gravity, uh, the the weightiness, the the solemn task of preaching. And he begins with the, the life of Jonathan Edwards and talking about his life. And at one point, he, he makes this note at the beginning of this chapter talking about Edwards. He says, you will look in vain for one joke in 1,200 sermons. Now, as I read that as a young man, I, my, what my takeaway was I'm not allowed to tell jokes. So I, I, I've changed in that a little bit over time. I've, I've, I've backed off of that a hair. Uh, in some ways, I think Jonathan Edwards himself was a pretty sober guy. And I don't know that we're all wired exactly like he is. And I think that's okay, right? But that is uh, quite a statistic. Uh, he had a tremendous power in his preaching. It was profound. And certainly we all know from history the profound impact it had on the congregation at Northampton as evidenced by his sermon that all of you likely have heard of, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, for many of us, we think he must have been standing on the edge of the pulpit and pounding and shaking, and that's not the case. Edward's standard form of delivery was simply to read his sermon from a manuscript that he had written out word for word. That's it. He didn't have a lot of voice inflection, or any. And yet what came through was this personal intensity of feeling. His own personal fervent spirit. A hint, as it were, of the very power of God because Edwards himself had such a zeal and longing for the greatness of God and to know God. Proclaiming God's truth was incredibly important to him as his approach, I think, would demonstrate. So what I want us to observe today in this text, this challenge that Paul offers to the pastors, the elders of Ephesus, is this. We, we as a body, we as believers, both pastor and believers, pastors and believers, must be committed to proclaiming, and receiving the whole counsel of God. Proclaiming and receiving the whole counsel of God. In truth, I can be as passionate as I want to about proclaiming it. You have to be every bit as passionate about receiving it and doing something with it, right? Now, remember the focus of Acts. From the very beginning, we've discussed this. Second longest book in our New Testament the second set in a two-volume set, first the Gospel of Luke and now the Acts of the Apostles. And Luke tells us right at the beginning, this is the ongoing story. This is the continuing story of all Jesus began to do and teach. The emphasis of it is that his followers will become witnesses. It'll start in Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 7, and then Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 to 12, and then to the ends of the earth, chapters 13 
to the end of the book. And, and that's where we're at. We're in the section to the ends of the earth. We'll get to Rome before we finish Acts. So three things that I want us to observe today. First, the way Paul begins. We begin with the exemplary ministry of Paul among them and then his future plans. Now, sometimes you will hear some say the Bible is not necessarily given as kind of this moral example. And and to some extent, that is true. But folks, let's be honest. On more than one occasion, Paul said to somebody, You follow Jesus like I do. So there is a modeling and example orientation to certain characters throughout Scripture. And sometimes it's a horrific example, right? Um, uh, We could look at some Old Testament characters and say, yeah, let's not live like them, right? Samson would be one that comes to mind. Let's not live like that. And for most of us, we'd say, well, I can't knock down a building. Yeah, that's not the point. The point is Samson was a self-consumed, self-absorbed, self-centered man. That shouldn't characterize God's people, right? So Paul says to these pastors, listen, I've demonstrated for you tangibly how to do what I'm going to call you to do. Remember, I want you to do what I'm going to charge you with. I want you to do it the way I showed you how to do it. And that's really where Paul begins and where he ends. He ends with the example of his own ministry. So as we begin, Luke, as he often does, he brings us in to the, to the account very quickly. Verse 17, kind of the background. This is why they're coming to Miletus. If we looked at a map, it's surprising how far the Ephesian elders came to meet with Paul here in Miletus. Uh, It's amazing, but this was significant to them, for them. Certainly it was significant to Paul. We're going to look at this farewell address. And what amazes me as as I dig at a passage like this is the ancient evidence for certain types of speeches. A farewell address was another common ancient speech, and in some respects, Paul follows the pattern of a farewell address. I mean, it's fascinating to me. I won't get in the weeds on that, okay? But it is amazing. And he calls us to some implications based on what he's going to tell them. He's not just saying this to pastors. This is not a message that you sitting here can say, oh, this is for you, Pastor Dave. You're preaching to yourself, which I am. And in truth, I am most weeks, all right? But this isn't one that you say, oh, I can check out on. No, this is for us. This is for us as disciples, as followers of Jesus. This is for us. And it's imperative that we understand Paul's message to them because of its implications for us. So as Paul addresses them, he rehearses his own ministry. And one of the things I want you to note, and sometimes people will point out, and many commentaries do, they point out that Paul begins with serving But what I want you to note is this. Paul is not suggesting that he was the best at hospital visitation. He wasn't suggesting that he was the best at mopping floors. That's not what he's suggesting. What Paul is telling them is the manner in which he served them, I think. Because he goes on. Look at what he says. And note the whole. He's serving who? First and foremost, Paul understood who ultimately he was serving. And that's why in the midst of conflict, in the midst of persecution, Paul did not waver because he understood that ultimately the one he was serving was not the congregation. He was serving the Lord. He was serving the Lord. And he goes on and he says, I'm serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials happening to me through all of this. And yet I didn't shrink back from what? Declaring to you. And this is literally, we could translate it like this. I did not shrink back to proclaim and to teach you. I did not shrink back from proclaiming and teaching. Listen to me. I think the serving the Lord actually goes to proclaiming and teaching. That was Paul's manner of serving. 
he was proclaiming and he was teaching the people in Ephesus. Now, it doesn't mean at some point he didn't mop a floor. Paul's going to say that before he's done. I, I worked with my own hands. I wasn't taking your money, your gold, your silver, your possessions. That was never what this was about. What it was about was to proclaim and to teach you the things of God. But look at, look at what he says before he's done. I did this in public and I did it from house to house. I did it on a one-on-one -on -one basis. I did it on a public basis, private, publicly. I'm teaching you, verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, what? Of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus. So what is it that Paul is testifying and teaching? What is it that Paul is proclaiming? What is it? It's the gospel. Repentance towards God and faith in Jesus. So repentance towards God is a change. It's a transfer of my interaction, relationship, perspective towards God. I'm turning. And how does that turn, in some respects, take effect? What's the, the impact? What makes the difference? Faith in Jesus. That's what helps this process of turning in my perspective towards God. It's faith in Christ. And this is Paul's message. This is his teaching. This is his focus. Now, to be blunt with you this morning, that has to be my focus as we engage the word on a regular basis. But in truth, it doesn't matter if that's my focus if you don't care. If you don't want to receive that, if you aren't listening for that, if you aren't engaged with that, if you aren't accepting that, I can stand up here and do that all day. And folks, that doesn't mean you leave the church or that you only come sporadically. What I'm saying is you can sit here and the truth can bounce off of your forehead and fall on the floor and you can walk out unchanged. What Paul is calling not just ministers to, what he's calling people to, is to receive the truth. What do you do with the truth that we engage with on a regular basis? Do you demonstrate your personal commitment to God by your response to the truth? Folks, how is the truth changing us? We, we can say we want the truth all day long. How is the truth changing the way you engage? How does it change the way you engage your family, both really close and kind of extended? And folks, let's be blunt today, right? When, when are we not? But let's be blunt today. Extended family can be a little bumpy, right? How many of you have a perfect engagement with every one of your extended family members? Don't raise your hand because I will call you a liar, right? None of us do. None of us do. There, there's, there's always something. You know, if it's not Aunt Gertrude, it's Uncle Bert. And there's just, he is weird. And he always says something inflammatory at the Thanksgiving dinner table, right? And all the people under 25 roll their eyes and some of them leave the table. Right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Folks, the way that we engage each other, even those extended odd family members, should be evidenced by the transformation of Jesus in our lives. Is that what characterizes you? Is that what characterizes me? Is that what characterizes us as God's people this is supposed to change us. This message is not just being tossed out there to the wind and ah, I hope it'll do something. No, it's supposed to shape the way we live. And folks, the way that you live is changed first in your thinking. And when your thinking begins to change, it will change the way you act. Th think about this in a thousand areas in your life. How many of you, uh, 10 years ago, how many of you would have been concerned with or as concerned with a vaccination or not? Right? I mean, think about it. 
Some of you, that's a, that's a drop-dead issue. If you're not getting that, I'm, I'm a little terrified of you, right? Some of you are like, ah, I'm still not getting that vaccination, right? So maybe you haven't changed all that much in 10 years on that particular issue, right? Think about even, they say your taste buds change every 10 years. Think about the things you eat now that you didn't eat 10 years ago. Right? Listen to me, we all change. How does that change happen? The way you think. It's the way you think. Somebody you come across at work says, hey, you should try this, it's really good. You've never tried it, you have no reason to try it. But they recommended it, and they certainly look happy when they did. And so you say, oh, I'll try that. It's one of your favorite things. Why? Your thinking changed. Listen to me. That's exactly the way our living changes. We change our thinking first. Do you know the only way truly for your thinking to be adjusted? It's the Word. It is the Word. The Word of God has this unique power. Ephesians 5 talks about it. To wash your mind like water. The Word can cleanse and change the way you think. Do you believe that? Now, when I say, do you believe that, I'm going to follow that with a question. If you believe it, you spend time in it. So think back to your week. Did you spend time in the Word? Did you give it any time this week? Did you engage it at all? Folks, listen to me. If it's going to change us, we have to engage it. And that doesn't mean Christian books and other things aren't good, but engage the Word. Engage the Word, just the Word, with the Word, that's it. Engage the word. And for some of you, young moms, at times you say, I can't engage the word with somebody screaming. That's okay. With all the technology we have now, turn it on and listen to it. Right? You can engage the word. But what do we really think about the word? Think about the way you engage it. It's critical that we understand the necessity, the importance of the word. The word is the one thing that will sustain us over the long haul, even when we come up against what for us are really, really hard things. The word can sustain you, and it will. So are you engaging the word? Paul goes on in verse 22, and now he's going to rehearse kind of what's coming. Uh, And he talks about this in verses 22 and following. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, if you recall, he said this back in chapter 19, verse 21. Luke begins to tell us there that, that Paul has set his eyes. And he kind of frames it this way. He says, Paul resolved in his spirit. And if you remember, we talked about that. That could be Paul resolved in his spirit or the spirit was resolving in Paul, right? Well, I think in some ways, Luke clarifies that here. With Paul's own words, it is the Spirit of God that is at work in Paul directing him. You go. You go back to Jerusalem. And Paul says, listen, I know. I know I don't know how it's going to turn out. And he even goes as far as to say, and think this through for a moment, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Folks, listen very, very, very carefully to me. You know why 2020 hit us so hard? Because we all account our lives so precious. That's why it was so hard. That's why it was such a hurdle. Because we genuinely believe in our minds we have some control over life. We don't. The Bible tells us God knows your first day and he knows your last day before they begin. You know, you can't control it. Whether you wear a mask, get a shot or not. Either or you can't control it. It's not yours to control. It's not yours to manage. Paul understood that. He says, you know what? I'm I'm not living as if my life is the most valuable thing. And folks, listen to me. There is a trauma that comes when that's how we live life. Life is about me and it's about my comfort and it's about, oh, I don't, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to feel pain. Listen, who wants to feel pain? Right? I mean, be honest, unless you are messed up in the head. Nobody wants to feel pain. 
But folks, there's something bigger than that in Paul's mind. What is that? He goes on and he says that in verse 24. Look, look at what he says. This is, this is my goal. This is my longing. Finish my course in the ministry that Jesus gave me to do. And what is that? Testify. Testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Now, Paul is going to say three different things that he's proclaiming here. The first one is repentance towards God and faith in Jesus, right? This is the second one, the gospel of the grace of God. The third one will be the kingdom, right? Listen to me. We've already talked about this. Those three are synonymous. He's not saying I'm preaching three different messages. This is the same thing. Paul's shooting down the same barrel every time but he characterizes it a little bit differently. And I don't think that he's intending us to make some kind of distinction in each of those. I'm teaching about this over here. I'm teaching about, no, this is the same thing. He's teaching on the same thing here, right? And and we'll see the third one in a moment. Is that how you look at life? It's not about life. It's not about comfort. It's about the kingdom. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus. It's about making much of him. Folks, listen to me. I do think that we could rest a lot easier if we adjusted our thinking in that regard a little bit. Right? If we shifted our mindset a little bit, let go a little bit of the things of of this life. And that's hard. That, that is hard. In our current climate, that is so hard. Because so much of life is about who? Me, 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 my, right? My comfort, my stability, my retirement, my plan, my car, my house, my, 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 my. Folks, that's not Christian. Do you understand that? The American way, the American mindset is not Christian. It's materially driven. And Paul says, that, that's, not, that's not my focus. It never was. It doesn't mean it's bad to have things. But as believers, we have to put those in perspective. My things are for the kingdom. They're for the kingdom. Right? That's why if somebody comes to the house and they get a little dirt on my carpet, that's okay. It's for the kingdom. Right? That dirt is for the kingdom. By God's grace, that's how we have to look at the things that we look at. The neighborhood I live into. By God's grace, I want to engage in such a way for the kingdom. I want to make a difference for the kingdom. This is the way that believers have to think and should be motivated. What motivates you? What drives you? This was was Paul's driving motivation. What is it that drives you? Why do you serve God the way you do? Or why don't you? Why aren't you serving? Is it because of this? Life's too much and I'm overwhelmed and I just, oh, I just can't do that. What motivates you to do what you do? As believers, we have to be motivated by something bigger. God's message, God's design, God's plan. And Paul goes on and he says in verses 25 to 27, again, he rehearses with them. He says, listen, I I know that none of you among whom I have gone about, again, here it is, proclaiming the kingdom. You're not going to see my face again. Now, in some respects, this is jarring for this group. And we know it's jarring because of the way Luke concludes. Luke literally says, these guys are broken up because Paul said he's never going to see their face again. He says he's not going to see them. He He has no intent, no way of knowing. Now, Likely, eight years or so later, when he writes to Timothy, he's hoping to come. He's hoping to come back. He's hoping to be able to to swing through there again. Potentially from Rome. I, I don't know. Right? But at this point, Paul says, I'm not going to see you again. And you know what? I don't know that he did. I don't know that he did ever see these men again like this, certainly, Some of them may have come to Rome and visited him. Some who were from Ephesus were with him in Jerusalem, right? They traveled with him. So it's not that he didn't see any of them, but collectively he says, I'm not going to see you guys again. And this is a jarring reality for them. Imagine the difficulty for them. Imagine the difficulty of missing Paul's 
emphasis, though, even as he says this, Paul emphasizes again what? He's preaching the kingdom. I'm proclaiming the kingdom. And the word proclaim there is literally the word preach. Paul says, I was among you and I was preaching the kingdom of God. Listen, throughout this entire thing, initially as I started into this passage, I thought in some ways it's kind of a pastoral charge to pastors. Right? And certainly it has implications for the congregation. You know what? It's not. It comes back to my favorite subject, and I was glad to turn to it. Right? It's on the significance and power of the Word. And at every turn, in every section, Paul comes back to it. The Word. And here it is again. Paul literally says, in the midst of, I'm going to leave you, I was proclaiming. I was preaching the kingdom to you. Folks, this is what matters for us as a church. And this is why we meet on Sunday mornings and preach the truth of God's word, hopefully by God's grace. And that's why we meet again on Sunday night and we preach the truth again. Why? Because we need it. You need it. I, I need it. We need these truths. And that's exactly what Paul says. These Ministers, to these pastors, to these elders. These are the truths God's people need. And I demonstrated among you, as I ministered, I demonstrated this to you. I showed you how to do it. I showed you what this looks like. So for us today, do you long for the word? Do you long to hear the word? Do you long for your life to be shaped by the word? Folks, as people come to our church, they'll come in and they'll engage for a time and then sometimes they leave after a little while. Do you know more often or not when they leave? Do you know that no one, no one, no one has ever said to me, I don't like the way that we engage with the word. I don't like that. But do you know in the end, at least in my mind, do you know in the end why everybody leaves? They don't like the way we engage with the Word. <laughs> That's it, right? It, it's too real. Sometimes it's a little in your face, right? It, it's, too, it's too much. I don't want to engage the Word like that. And folks, I, I've got to be honest with you. As I read a passage like this, I think in our minds, how could I, as a 21st century believer, not long to engage the Word like this? This is what Paul says. It was everything. Engaging the word fully encompassed Paul's ministry among these people in Ephesus for three years. Publicly, privately, the word, the word, the word, the word, the word. That was it. Do you long for the word like that? Folks, we need the word. And the saddest thing to me is in the 21st century, as opposed to the first century, we have literally thousands, maybe a million more tools to engage the Word than they did. And we may be the, the least biblically literate group of believers that has ever been in church history. It's, it's unbelievable. The, the irony of that is jarring. You have at your disposal as many or more tools than the great reformers did in the 1500s on your computer. Free! Free! Do we engage the Word? Do you long for the Word? We need the Word. I need the Word. Are we engaging God's truth? So he goes on now to challenge them. Verses 28 to 32 primarily is this challenge. He's going to give two commands to them, two admonitions we could call it. He begins with verse 28, the first one. Pay careful attention. The second one is verse 31. Be alert. So pay attention. Be alert. Right? Now these exhortations, uh, in a sense, Paul is saying to them, I'm kind of charging you with this before I leave. This is your job. This is your job. So he begins with their job first as pay attention to who? Yourselves. Now, the text we read in 1 Timothy 4, that's where Paul is at with Timothy. Timothy, you do have to pay attention to the way that you are personally engaging the word and living this out and being transformed. It, it, in some respects, on the minister, it is always incumbent upon him to personally 
be growing, to personally be longing for the word, to personally be shaped by this truth. If it doesn't impact in here, it's definitely not going to come out to here, right? Uh, actually, I've engaged or listened to ministers who they're not being transformed by the word. You know how I can tell? Because I could barely stay awake. It, was, it may have been the most boring 30, 20, 60 minutes of my life, right? It's just hard because you know what it is? It's not, it's not in them. It's not in them. There's no passion in them. There's no zeal in them, right? So Paul says first to these guys, listen, this has to be real for you. This has to be personal for you. You have to be chasing this personally. Now, you can all say, yeah, amen, pastor. That's true for you. Here's the truth. So do you. It's incumbent upon every believer to have that kind of zeal and longing. You may not certainly have the same tools at your disposal. You certainly may not have the same time at your disposal, but you should have the same zeal. You should have the same longing. You should have the same passion. Do you want to know God like that? That should be in all of us. He moves from the challenge for them personally. He moves to the second challenge for them to be on guard for the flock, to watch over all the flock. And here's what he says, and I love this little note. In which, I lost my place, the Holy Spirit. So in which the Holy Spirit has made you. Remember this, and listen carefully to me. This is an issue. Anytime you hear a story, you hear an account of pastoral abuse because of oversight or pastoral he takes advantage or whatever, whatever. Anytime you hear that, you know the first problem? Yeah, he didn't have enough parameters to keep him under control. Nope. He didn't have enough guidance. Nope. There weren't enough accounting, you know, uh, safeguards. Nope. 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 I know you got other ones going in your head. I'm just saying nope and not naming them. You know what happened? He forgot that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit put him in that congregation. When you forget that, parameters don't matter. You'll find a way. You can have a billion parameters. You'll find your way around. When you've decided it's no longer about the Holy Spirit and his ministry, it's no longer about Jesus, it's no longer about the glory of his name. When you get there, there's, no, there's never enough parameters. There will be abuses. There will be wrongs because you have forgotten your place. The church is not about you, me. The church is always about God and it is always about Jesus. And if we forget that, we're all lost. We're all in trouble. And I don't mean lost unsafe. I mean, we've lost our way. This ministry, this church has to be about Jesus. Paul reminds them of that, in which the Spirit has made you an overseer. Now, the overseer is a very, very interesting word. It is a word that means a guardian or a protector. It's one who is watching over. Now, it's interesting, and I believe I incorrectly told you when we went through 1 Peter 5, it's the only text in the New Testament that gives us all three descriptions, names of a pastor. Guess what I discovered this week? This is the second all three names for pastors show up here. Two of them in this verse, the first one to the elders earlier in this text. But this text includes it as well. And interestingly enough, though it's written by Paul, spoken by Paul, written by Luke, and recorded the other by Peter, the emphasis is shockingly similar. Feed the flock of God, right? I mean, emphasize the word, preach the word, right? Amen, right? So this, this is his emphasis. As an overseer, you are guarding and protecting. You are watching over. How do you do that? Most effectively, proclaim the word. Teach the word. Preach the word. Testify the truth of Jesus, of God, of repentance toward God, of faith in Jesus. Proclaim, preach the kingdom, right? The gospel of Jesus. This is the emphasis. This is how we maintain or protect or guard God's people. Second, 
He goes on. The second one, he, he, he phrases it differently, kind of in a verbal sense. He uses the word care for. But the word is the same word for shepherd. That's the idea of this word. It's connected with the noun form of shepherd. And it means simply to function again as a guardian giving care, shepherding the flock of God. So Paul concludes again, kind of with a motivation to effectively fulfill this role. How is this role going to happen? Well, why is it going to happen? Why are they going to be motivated to oversee and care for and protect and provide for the church? Look what he says. He says to care for the church of God. It's not yours, right? That's first. It's not yours. And how do we know it's his? Because he obtained it. He bought it. He purchased it with his own blood. Now, this is a fascinating note. We won't park on it. But note this. Throughout all of Acts, throughout all of Luke's gospel, what is it that Luke emphasizes about Jesus? Resurrection. 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 You know what's fascinating here? He emphasizes his blood. He purchased the church with his blood. He purchased you with his blood. We are his because he bought us back from sin. That's what redeemed means. It means to buy back. Jesus purchased us with his blood. And Paul says, you oversee, you shepherd the flock of God. Why? Because he bought it. It's not yours. It's his. He bought it. So lead them in a way that exalts him. Two warnings, verse 29 and 30. The first warning is that wolves are going to come in. Now, what I want you to note, and twice, I, I've, I've been telling us this as we work through the epistles. Many, many, many times, depending on your background, when you hear warning about false teachers, the warning about false teachers is always where? Out there, right? Out there. Hey, there's a false teacher down in Texas. Beware. I don't know about you, but there's a piece of me that immediately thinks, Texas, Texas. Am I going to Texas? No, I don't think so. Why do I care about a false teacher in Texas? I mean, you know, pardon me, I guess I'm a little bit of a cynic, a critic, a, you know what I mean? I, I, it's just the way my head works. Why, why Texas? Why am I concerned about Texas? Well, maybe I should do more warning because maybe, who knows, you're listening to somebody from Texas. Right? And you're believing it. I hope you're not. I hope you have more discernment than that. But maybe you are. Many times our emphasis on false teachers are always outside, outside, outside. What the New Testament, the more I look at this, you know what the New Testament's concern is? Look what he says in verse 29, and I want you to notice it. Circle it if you write in your Bible. And if you don't, start. It really makes it valuable. All right? Come look at mine. It looks like a little kid had a coloring crayon in it. Okay? Look at verse 29. He says... The fierce wolves will come in among you. Among. Circle that. Among. You know what makes a wolf so dangerous? When they're among you. They don't have to chase the sheep. Right? They just, they're sitting by them and so they bite them. You know, they're right there. They're among you. Beware of these wolves among you. Look at the second warning. It's, just, it's, it's very similar. But look what he says. Verse 30. And from, oh my goodness, there it is again. Among you, right? Among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted. Twisted is perverted things to draw away disciples after them. What does, what does he mean? What he means is this. There's going to be guys within the church. There's going to be guys that are going to pop up within the church. And what do they want? They want their own disciples. They want people to follow them. So they're going to come up with some perverted, weird, goofy things. And they're going to lead people astray. They're going to get people to follow them. And folks, if you don't believe that, do a very brief study on the cults and odd religions that exist in our world. You know what almost every single one of them is? A founder comes up with a twisted, perverted, frankly, many times, just goofy, just odd thing. And guess what? People follow. 
right? Passionate leader, he's got zeal, people follow. Some of those cults have gotten pretty big, right, over the years. Some of those cults have really exploded. Paul again says, where's it going to come from? From within. And here's the piece that fascinates me, and I want you to think about this. When Paul writes to Timothy about this danger in 1 Timothy, he says right away, chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that, purpose, purpose, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Guess what's already an issue? Eight years later, eight years Eight years later, guess what's an issue? They're already doing it. Some of them have already twisted. Some of them have already perverted. Paul sends Timothy and says, hey, get them straight. <laughs> get, get that straightened out. It doesn't take long. It does not take long. That's why Paul gives that warning. He goes on, second command is be alert, stay focused, be aware. Paul reminds them of his own admonishment. Now listen carefully to this. Look at verse 31. He says, remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you. You know what that word admonish is? It's the word that we get our word nuthetic from. If you know anything about real biblical counseling, it's described as nuthetic counseling. It comes from this word. The word to admonish. How does a true believer change? Through the word. So the idea of nuthetic counseling is, I have a problem. What do I do with that problem? Okay, here's what the Bible says about it. Here's how that should impact what you do. Here's how that should change what you do. Now, go put that into practice. What? What we said in the Bible. What we studied in the Bible. Listen carefully to me. That is true biblical counseling. And listen carefully, we have to be careful. There's a lot of people that are trained as secular counselors, and then they say, I'm a Christian, so I can help you. I'll, I'll give you Christian counseling. No, you won't. You've been trained as a secular counselor. So you're going to give me secular ideology, and you're going to pray with me at the end. No, <laughs> that's not Christian. That's not Christian. Christian is, I have a problem. Okay, what's God say? You see what I mean? So that, it's imperative that we do that. And listen to me, Paul says, in essence, that's what I'm doing as I teach you. I'm taking you to the Bible. I'm saying, here's the issue. Here's how you should be different. Here's the issue. Here's how it should change you. Here's the issue. Here's how you should think and ultimately live. Do you see that? Paul is saying, that's what I did among you. That's what you are to continue to do among God's people there in Ephesus. Look what he says in verse 34. And he finishes with this, and this is incredible. Again, this is similar, I think we'll look at it in a second in Philippians. He says in verse 32, And now I commend you to God. Paul is literally saying to them, I'm entrusting you to God. I can't be everywhere all the time. So you know what? I'm going to turn you over to the person who can be. I'm going to entrust you to God. And I'm going to entrust you to the word of his grace. Do you know why Paul could leave these believers confident? Because he knew he could trust God. And he knew the word. He understood the power of the word to continue to transform and shape them, and mold them, and make them what God would have them to be. And so Paul can say, you know what? I'm going to entrust you to God, and to the word of his grace, to continue its work in your life. Do we believe that? Do we live like we believe that? It sounds very similar to Philippians 1, where Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is not a new idea. Paul says this. Paul says this, and you know what? God, if he has transformed you, he will bring you to completion. He will. And to be frank, I rest in that quite often, especially when I think in my mind, that's not going well for them. That situation's hard. 
that situation is not good. They didn't respond well to that situation. You know what? In some respects, I have to pull back and say, well, I'm entrusting that to God and to the word of his grace. And he will bring them to completion. God is able to do that. As his people, are we going to the word and allowing him to do that? Is that what is that what is happening to you as you engage the word? So as Luke now brings us to a conclusion, he comes back, gives a final word about the motives of ministry before he departs. And those motives are listed again in verses 33 and 35. Paul again says what? I didn't take from you. I wasn't looking for your silver, your gold or your possessions. It wasn't about material gain. It never was. Listen very, very carefully to me. Any person who is saying to you, give me this and you'll get this. There ought to be so many red flags flying up in your head that you don't listen to another word they say. Right? And if it's on a television, you turn it off. If it's on a radio, you turn it off. That is not godly. That's not the goal. Now, it doesn't mean we don't compensate somebody that's doing the work. That's not the point either. But the point is, it's not always a grab. Right? It's not always a money grab. I'm not always after possessions and stuff at every single turn. This is what Paul says. I did not do that. I worked hard while I was among you to provide for my own needs. And he goes on and he quotes Jesus. Now, this is not a direct quote. It doesn't occur anywhere in the Gospels. But certainly it aligns with the teaching and the life, the living of Jesus. It is better to give than to receive. Think about that in the context of ministry. Think about that. Think about if my sole goal is to receive how frustrating ministry would be. Because there's not always a lot of receiving. Uh, Oftentimes there's giving, right? And that's why Paul says in the context of ministry, it is better to give than to receive. There, There is a joy, there is a satisfaction in giving, in helping, in serving God's people, as you engage them with the word, there is a joy there. There is a fulfillment there that really can't be described in words. Paul understood that. He hoped that they would understand that. And those are his parting words that Luke records for us. Certainly he goes out from the city with them. He prays with them. And then they weep together. And I think a couple of things are fascinating to me. There is a time for grief. There is a time for sorrow. There is a time where we, in this life, folks, we, there are losses. And do you understand why losses are so hard in this life? Do, do you understand why loss hurts so bad in this life? Because in creation, that's not the intent. Do you understand that? Part of the curse is death. You were never intended. God did not design you to say goodbye to your loved ones. And people say, well, that's just a part of life. No, it's a part of the curse. (laughs) That wasn't the design. That's why Adam lived for 900 years. Right? God made you to live, not die. But because of the curse, we lose. So there is a time for grief. We, We saw that in Acts 7. Well, what did the disciples do at the death of Stephen? They wept. They wept. But Luke doesn't leave us there. What happens in Luke in Acts 8? We go on. Grief is not intended to be something when we lose somebody. And, and we, we were at a funeral Monday. A funeral for our neighbor lives two doors down. And we stood out there in the rain and listened to her family talk about her and say things about her that we knew to be true. And people wept and they cried and um, some of us fought back tears. And then we left. And we didn't spend the rest of the week mourning. When I go out of my house, I look over there at their driveway and sometimes there's different cars in the driveway and I think she's not there anymore. I don't break down in the driveway and fall on the ground and my wife comes out 30 minutes later and I'm crying and I'm laying in the neighbor's yard and I've got grass on my face and I'm just, you know, I was weeping. 
No, there's a time for mourning. But for believers, folks, I mean, think this through. Paul says this to the believers in Thessalonica, right? We don't weep. We don't mourn as those without hope. Folks, if we go to a place of constant mourning, that is pagan at its core. That's pagan. If I'm a believer, there's always hope. Why? Because I have a right standing with God. That has to frame everything else. So even in my losses, I'm framing those losses with the hope that's to come. That's exactly Paul's, Paul's point to the Thessalonian believers, who some of them, potentially, that's what they were doing. They were just mourning and mourning and mourning and mourning because they didn't understand. And Paul says, stop it. There's hope, and the hope's a lot bigger than the sorrow. For believers. Now, that's a tougher loss if you're not certain somebody was a believer. It is. But it's still for the believer doesn't leave us hopeless. And it's critical that we understand that. So hopefully we can see together. We both, pastors, people, believers, we must be committed to proclaiming, receiving the whole counsel of God. And listen to me, in truth today, you can't do that if you don't know Jesus. You don't want the whole counsel of God. You don't want the word. You're not truly interested. If you're a follower of Jesus, you want to know more. You want to learn more. You want to walk more closely with the Lord. But if you're not a believer, you don't have that. So that's the first step. Turn in faith to Jesus. If you have Jesus, live, live out these words from Paul. In 1744, Jonathan Edwards, he preached an ordination sermon entitled The True Excellency of a Gospel Minister. And nearing the end of the sermon, he made this following statement about the Christian minister. He said this, If a minister has light without heat and entertains his auditory or his audience with learned discourses, without a savor of the power of godliness or any appearance of fervency of spirit and zeal for God and the good of souls, he may gratify itchy ears and fill the heads of his people with empty notions, but it will not be very likely to reach their hearts or save their souls. And folks, I don't know about you, But there's nothing that drives me more than that thought of reaching God's people's heart. Of engaging their very souls with his truth. That is the purpose. And that's Paul's charge. And by God's grace, that's what we want to do. And by God's grace, I hope that's what you want to receive. Because it's the only thing that can change you. It's the only thing that can transform you. It's the only thing that can make you more like Jesus. It's the only thing. So today, are we looking to receive God's truth and be shaped by it? We can be. I hope that's your longing. We need grace for that, don't we? 